Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we will be hearing from Dr. Brent Gensel. Dr. Gensel is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Kaufman, Texas, where he has served since August of 2000. He attended Hardin-Simmons University and majored in Bible and History, where he graduated as the Logsdon Scholar. He also received his master's and PhD from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. After completing his PhD coursework in August of 2000, Dr. Gensel came to the pastorate in Kaufman and also founded Sodalis, a network of thriving churches across Texas, which represents over 25,000 congregants. Without further ado, Dr. Brent Gensel. This is an incredible passage of scripture, but it's deeper if you know a little more than most people might about the setting. It's set in Caesarea Philippi again, uh, which today looks something like this. Now, that cave that's back in the back was really important for most of, um, of, of history because out of that cave came the Jordan River. It was the headwaters for the river that gives life to the entire nation of Israel still to this day, one of the only freshwater sources for this region of the world. And it came out of the cave from under the ground and begins to flood into what is now modern-day Israel. This Jordan River Valley was rich and lush because of the life that came from the cave. For most of history, it was a holy place. In Abraham's day, that would have been the case. But then there arose the Greeks and the Romans, and things changed. Maybe you remember something about Greek or Roman mythology from a high school class. They held that Hades, they held that Hades or hell was on the other side of underground portals like this one. The way to get to the river Styx was to go through one of these places in the earth where the water breaks forth toward the sky. And so, of course, this became synonymous with the gates of hell. By the time of Christ, the once beautiful place had been turned into a pagan temple to the Greek god Pan, who was the god of fear and sexual debauchery. And as you may have figured out by now, the spot was named after him. The city's called Panias, the area because of this temple to Pan that was in the middle of it all. For the disciples, it must have been a somewhat terrifying place, even an evil place full of death and gross sexual rituals that exalted every perversion and predatory act condemned in Scripture. It would have been a place of destruction and fear for them. So Jesus doesn't go to Falls Creek or Mount Lebanon with the disciples, right? Like he's in this place of evil and fear. It's a celebration of the exploitation of women and children and the debasing of humanity. And here Jesus asks the question of a group of young adults living in such a world, now, who exactly do you think I am? And I can imagine that they're a little uneasy about this location, maybe even intimidated by the evil that's there. This wasn't a place that good Jewish boys frequented. But it's here that Jesus asks the question, and the question grabs their attention, and Peter answers, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus says, you're right about that. God has told you this, Peter. And on this rock, on this truth, on this reality of who I am and the gospel that I represent, I will build my church and this promise, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see the power now in the declaration. They're looking at all this evil surrounded by all of this debauchery. And Jesus says, you're going to overcome it. Don't be afraid or intimidated. What's happening, about to happen in the world has the power to change all this. What possible strategy could overcome the ever-present advance of all of this darkness? And Jesus' answer is the church, his church. The answer to the problems and the brokenness of the world is the church of Jesus Christ. As we see all around us, uh, the the advances of hell in lots of different places, God would say to us, this generation, my answer to the world's problems is the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the promise of Jesus. Right now, the world is once again bowing at the altar of Pan. Millions, of worship, millions worship their desires, and millions more exploit weaker men, women, children for their own satisfaction. Children are deprived of a stable home where they can grow and flourish, and the results are painful to behold. As anyone teaching in a public school in the Metroplex right now will tell you, kids are messed up. Maybe more than ever before, there's widespread disrespect and violence and apathy unlike anything we've ever known. What's the cause? The gates of hell are spewing forth their venom. God's design for the expression of our sexuality and life has been abandoned, and therefore the family is everywhere under attack. The casualties are everywhere. The pain is real and lasting and falls most heavily on the young and the poor and the marginalized. And what is the answer? Then is now, Jesus is the answer, and he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's his promise. And you might say, how you say, pastors and priests who falter make the headlines all the time. But did you know that while one in two marriages in our culture fall apart, the rate of divorce among couples who are actively involved in a local church is only one in 37? Did you know that men who are involved in a local church are far more likely to invest in fatherhood and other young men, and there is far less violence in homes where church is a central part of the rhythm of the family? Women who attend church with their husbands consistently report being more sexually satisfied than women in any other sector in our country. The way of Jesus is the better path for our culture. It's the better path for your life. It's the better path for our children and our future. And if you want to make a difference in the world, Jesus Christ gave his life for the church, and so should you. Although the Civil War had ended slavery, there was a wave of racism that swept over our nation in the early 1900s. You ever wondered why? A lot of these statues that have gone up and come down across the country were built in the 1920s and 30s. Why would people wait until the 20s and 30s to put up Civil War monuments? You got any idea? This stuff doesn't make it in history books. It ought to. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Darwinists would push the survival of the fittest conversation to the academies. The application of the biology of Darwin soon moved into the social space, and the idea became prevalent among many in academic environments that survival of the fittest was a pathway forward for humanity. And then that played out in a conversation about race. In fact, the idea of race grew out of this movement and this moment in history. There were scientists and academic institutions of the age that promoted the relatively new notion that there were five or maybe up to nine races of humanity. 
And these different races of people were of greater or lesser capabilities and therefore values to the human species. Prior to men like Galton and Huxley, many people tended to think in terms of nationalities, cultures, and places of origin. But after Huxley, the idea of race grabbed a hold in Western culture and especially within the scientific community. The way of framing the world and even human, humanity in it was widely pushed by our colleges and universities, places like Yale and Columbia and even the University of Texas. In fact, just this uh, two years ago in November, Caltech became one of the first universities to be honest about its historical record on this topic, admitting that it helped to contribute to the great race problem in our nation. It propagated academic theories that bolstered this idea of different races and different values within these races. It won't surprise you to learn that Huxley was famously an atheist, and he unapologetically rejected the biblical notion of equality and justice altogether. Others like Charles Davenport would become prophets of such a scientific racism that dominated academic conversations and did indeed lead to the eugenics movement. By the early 1900s, charts created by German scholar Ernst Haeckel provided the definitive hierarchy of the races. There were nine races, there was a top race, and there was a bottom race, and all those in between. And this got published widely in academic circles. It was picked up by German scholarship and others in Europe and made its way to the United States. Eugenics, of course, was a program to improve the quality of the human population by controlling who had children and why. Scientific consensus drove this movement from the lecture hall to legislative halls in more than 30 states. They enacted laws authorizing the forced sterilization of unfit poor people, disabled immigrants, and otherwise socially undesirable people. By the way, Texas never took this step. But still across the nation, organizations like Planned Parenthood arose to press for better breeding of humans. Right now, the abortion debate is hot in the news again, and I don't know how the legal challenges are all going to kind of play out. But Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, advanced a controversial Negro project. She wrote in her autobiography about speaking at a Ku Klux Klan meetings, and she abdicated for a eugenics approach to breeding for, quote, the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds that threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Eugenics was all about the treating of humans like we do livestock, reducing, reducing human beings to desirable traits and reducing and eliminating those people and races that the wealthy and educated elite thought unworthy or even harmful to the world. I can't tell you how widespread this ideology was in the early 1900s and 1910s. It was, it was the scientific consensus in the academic halls in our country. You know, once people decide they don't believe in God, it's interesting how quickly they begin to act like they are. Planned Parenthood was established in 1916, and over 100 years later, Planned Parenthood is the leading provider of abortions that killed over 250,000 black children in 2020. This past year, black women were five times more likely to get abortions than white women. Over the last decade, more people with dark skin have died at the hand of abortion providers than all other causes of death combined. Still today, 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of minority communities. Sanger has proven to be the most effective and ruthless eugenicist of all time. However, we aren't here today to talk about abortion, but I want you to see in the early 1900s, Darwin's ideas were challenging the convictions of people of faith 
like you and me. Over the coming decades, these ideas born out of academia would be the intellectual foundation for a huge revival of the KKK. The numbers had declined in the, early, in the late 1800s. By the 1820s, there was this huge revival in the KKK across the country, and not just in the South. Tens of thousands of U.S. citizens were sterilized without their knowledge. Jim Crow laws eventually came from... And, of course, down the road, Hitler's Third Reich would rise and execute over six million Jews who were at the bottom of the nine-race list. How big was the movement in the United States? In case you've forgotten, President Woodrow Wilson showed the KKK propaganda movie Birth of a Nation in the White House in 1915, and it was celebrated after its viewing. And did you know in the early 1900s, state fairs went from judging pigs and cows to judging babies? You could take your baby to the State Fair of Texas where it would enter a better baby contest. And the judges would evaluate the genetic foundation for your child, its health and its growth, and compare it to others and make recommendations about whether you ought to have more kids or maybe you shouldn't. To be fair, these events were originally designed to promote healthy practices, parenting practices, but within a few years, the eugenics movement began to transition these events to fittest family competitions with the goal of promoting a planned approach to parenting that would work to breed out the, the worst in our society and breed toward what was best. And again, race was a significant part of the equation. This part of American history is ugly, and again, it often doesn't find its way into its textbooks. The very worst of this movement culminated in the New York Zoological Society's decision to display a young man from the Congo named Oda Binga in the ape house at the Bronx Zoo. This is a picture of Oda. This is the New York Times headline, Bushman shares a cage with the Bronx Park apes. Just like there was a plaque for the orangutan with which he was in the cage, right beside him there was Oda Binga's plaque, along with his age and his weight and the country of his origin. Hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers flooded the Bronx Zoo to see the young man in the ape cage. Again, the broad scientific community in the United States was favorable about this way of classifying human beings. What happened next sort of brings us to the point, because in the face of scientific consensus and great academic and popular opinion, many Baptist churches held fast to what the Bible taught on this issue and what does the Bible teach? God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Paul wrote that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, nor slave, nor free, no males or females. Every human being is equally valuable to God and in the eyes of God and therefore should be valuable to us. Paul eugenics would assert some radical ideas about race and the poor. In fact, even saying that they were morally bankrupt because of who they were, the Christian faith stood against it. In fact, there were sociologists in North Carolina who were frustrated about the way that the church was standing against the eugenics movement. They said those, those hymns they sing and the sermons they preach keep insisting that anyone can be redeemed and anybody be, can be transformed by the gospel regardless of their race or background. Don't they know they're on the wrong side of history? What happened to Otto is a pretty nice moment in the history of the church. 
With the firm commitment to the authority of the Bible over any other intellectual or social fad, a Baptist pastor named Reverend Robert Stuart MacArthur of New York City's famous Calvary Baptist Church in Manhattan stood up in his pulpit two days after Odabinga had been placed in the cage. And the New York Times reported on the front page what he said. In opposition to all the smartest and wealthiest and most powerful and important people in New York City, the vast majority of the science community community in, in alliance, MacArthur boldly declared, the person responsible for this exhibition degrades himself as much as he does the African. Instead of making a beast of this little fellow, he should be put to, in school for the development of such powers as God has given them. The other churches in New York City joined the outcry. And soon the whole city was abuzz with the conversation, and it wasn't long before, within the month, that they pressured the New York Zoological Society for, to release Oda to an orphanage. Broadly, the members of the academic and scientific community thought that Mr. MacArthur, again, was on the wrong side of history. They were frustrated these churches would stand in their way as they sought progress as they had defined it. But what was there to stand against such a moment in history? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So today we could talk about other things beyond race relations and, and, and what's going on on the abortion debate. We could talk about the loneliness in our culture. We could talk about, we could talk about problems that we're having in our country with, with reconciliation as well. We, we would do well to remember that the two great lights in history that moved the needle on the question of race after MacArthur's time were a Baptist pastor who grew up in a church and an English legislator by the name of William Wilberforce, who was a follower of Jesus and whose church loved him and supported him through the fight to end slavery in the UK. Again, there's other issues that we could talk about. We could explore loneliness or the, and the epidemic of poverty in the world. We could talk about the education crisis or the healthcare crisis. The church has been the answer in ages past, and still today, God's plan to redeem this world is his church. Right now, there's so much heat surrounding the apologetic, I mean, the, the, the political conversation. No politician's going to save our country. No political party is going to come and redeem the world. Jesus is the one, and his church is the answer. Okay, now I've got to really hurry. Antonio Gaudi was born on the outside of Rio, Spain in June of 1852. At a young age, he felt God leading him toward architecture, and he traveled to Barcelona to train with some of the finest architects in the world. In 1878, the call went out and announced that there was going to be a contest to see who could develop the best light pole for the city of Barcelona. These people were all into architecture. And he developed this thing, which is fantastical and ends up winning the contest. He becomes famous. And Gaudi then begins to be called upon to do some renovations of houses and apartments in Barcelona. Some of the wealthiest people in town ask him to do it, and he begins to apply this brand new way of thinking about architecture based on his theology that God has created in nature what is most beautiful and that we ought to reflect that in the way that we design our houses and the shapes that we form around them. And so out of that comes these really remarkable 
houses. Like this is one of these apartments that he renovated. It's supposed to look like the ocean with the dragon on top. And then, uh, and that's kind of a close-up of it. Inside, it's even really more incredible. Uh, once you move inside, I'm sorry, we got to hurry. Okay, so we got this in the inside and all these incredible shapes and the artisans are a part of it. So he does these amazing things. And then about 20 years into his career, God gets a hold of him and he says, you know what? I'm making all this money and all these wealthy people, these beautiful houses, but I serve someone more important than these people, and I'm going to give the rest of my life to building a grand church in the center of Barcelona to declare the glory of God to the generations that will follow. And so he begins uh, or picks up the work uh, exclusively beginning in about 1906. For the next 21 years of his life, he doesn't do anything but draw plans and sketches. And at the end of it all, uh, he's aware that he'll never get to see the thing completed. But he's got this just volumes of of architectural plans to what's going to happen inside of this building. He passes it along to the generations that followed. They've been working on it ever since. It's still not finished. They believe that they'll finally wrap this thing up in in 2026. On the outside, it kind of looks like this today. It's a beautiful building. In fact, it's the largest, tallest church in the entire world. Maybe you don't think much about the building. In the inside, it looks like this. Oh, that's what it looks like at night. Inside, it looks like this. There's a lot of people who believe it's the most beautiful church in the entire world. 20 million people come to Barcelona every year to see it. You have to get a ticket to get inside, and only 4.5 million are able to, but they pack it out every year. All day long, people come in, and all around it, it declares the glory of God. Gaudi famously said, was called God's architect. People ask him why he was working so slow, and he says, my client can wait. In his eyes, giving God all the glory for what was happening and doing it right was what was most important, and he wanted to use his gifts to build a church that would honor God for centuries to come. Today, I want to challenge you to be a church builder. Maybe you won't build physical buildings, but that you would give part of the best of your life to being a part of this Jesus movement and see that the local church it's the place that God intends to do the most important work in the world. That the work you do in teaching kids or teaching students about the gospel and about Jesus is the real work of transforming the culture and society. You can invest your life in a lot of other places, a lot of places you can put your energy and your efforts. But Jesus loved the church, and he gave his life for her. And I would challenge you to do the same. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would rise up church builders from the room that we sit in today. Not necessarily men and women that do brick and mortar or architectural designs, but that you would raise up men and women that would build magnificent churches, your spiritual people capable of declaring your goodness to the world and your glory to a generation that needs to see you. Thank you for our chance to be reminded that you are our God, that your church is the hope of the world, that you are building your church, and that the gates of hell in every generation will not stand against it. Amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.